0: Good morning, church. How are we all doing? Good? Last week, we started talking about the grace of God, and we talked about the quality of His love that there is no greater love than His. We also talked about the context of His love that He loved us while we were sinners and enemies, helpless, and ungodly. That the right question that's asked is not how much does God love us, because the quantity of love never changes, but that He loved us then. That if He loved us with that quality of love then, how much does He love us now? And that's not a description of the change in the quantity of His love. But that we are that much more able to experience his love now. So that was last week, and I want to continue in that vein um, this week, but before I get to that, I want to point your attention to the sermon schedule that's found in your bulletin as an insert. That's to help you be excited and anticipate. That's not to help you predecide which services you're going to miss. All of the sermons listed there are going to be wonderful, in my opinion. And I aim for each sermon to feel like 20 minutes. Not each sermon will be 20 minutes. Uh, But my hope is that it will feel like it. But really, my uh, big hope is that you would be excited about inviting others to church. When pastors call me up and ask me, hey, Peter, how can I get more people in my church to invite them to church. And I say, well, give them something that they would want to invite people to. I remind them that that we are all evangelists by nature, that I have sold many Apple products and Subarus in my life without receiving a single penny in commission. That's because I can't help it. Whatever I'm excited about, I'm going to sell. I'm going to talk about it. It's going to come out of my pores and out of my mouth. I'm going to sing praises and it becomes the gospel for the moment. And I hope you experience God in that way. And if you don't, it's going to be harder to invite people to church. And if you're not excited about this church, I'm going to do my best to help change your mind and feelings about that. And I'm going to try my best on those Sundays to not to embarrass you and your friends too much. But please... Uh, do invite your friends and coworkers and family members, especially if they don 't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I would love to have an opportunity to uh, have Adam and see if uh, we could work something out. <clears throat> Today, I want to continue uh, where I left off last week. Last week, we concluded with a statement that The love of God is undeserved and unconditional, undeserved and unconditional that this kind of love given to us at such a time, right? The scriptures tell us at the right time, Christ died for us. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. So the proper question is not how much does God love us, but when did God love us? He loved us then when we hated Him, when we were His natural enemies, when we were ungodly and helpless. How much more now? So the love of God is undeserved and unconditional, and this kind of love is called grace. Now, a couple more points I want to add to that. That the undeserved and unconditional love of God is alien to us, That the undeserved, unconditional, and alien love of God is threatening to us. That the undeserved, unconditional, alien, and threatening love of God is foundational. Those three things. I also want to forewarn you that at the end of the service, we're going to have communion, and we are going to use the communion partly to give an invitation and opportunity to some of you who don't know Christ personally, to do that for the first time in your life today. So if that's you sitting in the room, uh, you've been warned. Okay, first, the undeserved and unconditional love of God is alien to us. One of the first questions that come to my mind when I think about this grace of God in Christ is, do I know This love. Do I know it? Do you know it? Do you know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus that we call grace? This love which is undeserved and unconditional. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that God's love in Christ is so wide, so high, so deep, and so long. Okay, you ready? That it... Surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. You know what that means? That means that the love of God in Christ Jesus cannot be known by us, it cannot be learned by us. There is no quality or quantity of human experience, of human love, of human goodness that you and I can experience over a whole lifetime that would clue us in to the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's qualitatively different than what you and I can naturally come to know here on earth. It is absolutely unlearnable. This love of God surpasses knowledge. Now, I mentioned last week that I pursued Susie for four years. What that basically means is that she was a freshman, vulnerable and ripe for the picking. And I was the superior, all-knowing sophomore <laughs> in college. Sophomores really do believe they know everything. And uh, I certainly did. And so, and if you're a sophomore here, you'll realize when you are a junior that you did not know everything last year. And so you can get defensive all you want this year. That's fine. But I remember just pining after this girl named Susie. And uh, we were part of the same group of friends. We were all par- both part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship together. And so we did a lot of activities together, including meals and uh, such things. And so one of these times when we were all walking over, a group of us, to a friend's house for dinner... Um, Susie was in the front of the pack, and I was in the, in the back because I was cooler. Cool people don't hang out in the front. <laughs> and so I was hanging out in the back, and Susie's kind of a carefree person. Uh, she's got a bit of a hippie in her, and she's, she's not um, quite as paranoid as I am. Uh, but I grew up in New York City, in the inner city. I grew up rough and tough, and so I have a vivid imagination, and my mind is always on high alert. And uh, I remember when I first watched Spider-Man, the movie, and they showed, uh, they explained his spider sense, how he sort of has this premonition thing going, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you have to have as a baseline to survive in New York City. And so all the sort of spider instincts I brought with me to the University of Michigan where we went to school. And so we are waiting at a crosswalk, this group of us, with Susie in the front and uh, me in the back, and my spider senses are tingling because I see a scenario about to unfold before me, uh, even though Susie herself, who is, uh, you know, normal, <laughs> is oblivious to this. <laughs> so what, what's happening here is, let me describe it to the rest of you. There is a car that is stopped at the intersection right in front of Susie. And it's wanting to make, and you got to use your imagination here. You, it's waiting to make a right turn, and so therefore the driver is looking to his left. Very good, class. <laughs> is looking to his left, which means, and I know this instantly, which means he doesn't notice that Susie, who's waiting on his right side, assumes that the car is stopped for her, begins to set foot off the sidewalk onto the street. Now, I see this happening in slow motion, but it's happening fast, folks. Susie is about to step into the car, and the car, as Susie does, begins to move, but the driver is still looking to his left, which drivers do all the time, right? And I see this, and Susie is about um, about maybe two steps in front of the car and the car is beginning to move i rush forward lightning speed ninja instincts and this actually happened i pushed dear susie dear oblivious susie out of the way out of harm's way and instead i got hit by the car <laughs> It's a cute story, but it's a true story. I actually died for her as far as I was concerned. I had no idea if the car was going to stop. or Actually, it wasn't moving very fast. It was kind of crawling through. And I remember tapping on the hood and saying something wonderful to the driver. <laughs> but it's a true story, and nobody could ever take it away from me. I died for Susie. As great And wonderful as is my love, my love is for Susie, as has been firmly established by the story just presented, (laughs) my love for her is very conditional. It's very conditional because there were 12 other people in that group that I did not even see. They are just as valuable. They they are still human beings. They still have parents and friends that care. They have hopes and dreams and wants. That didn't occur to me at all. Because my love is conditional. Susie can't depend on my love all the time. My love is fragile. It's fickle. It's untrustworthy. But it's not the greatest love there is on planet Earth. There's also parental love, which, in my opinion, and in my own personal experience, comes closest to what I think of as God's love for me. I have a father who um, is, I don't know how else to say it, but that he is an intensely loving human being. He just loves me, and I just feel it. I know it in the deepest part of my heart. My Father loves me. He calls me up about once a week, and he says, Peter, you still haven't called me. I've been dying to know how Sunday went. He said, I've been praying for you every morning at 6 a.m. Because that's what, that's what his church does. They have a prayer meeting every morning at 6. He says, it's it's already Tuesday. You haven't called me yet. And he's just, he's so curious how Sunday went and how the sermon went and if the people liked it and if the elders still like me and (laughs) they laugh at your jokes. I remember eating meals with him and he would watch to see which Of the various dishes presented on the table, my chopsticks went to. And if my chopsticks went to those dishes, he wouldn't touch them. Because he was afraid that we'd run out and I would have less than my heart's desire. And I I picked up on this and I would just just be careful about what I thought he wanted. Because if I thought he would like it, I would not eat it. So that he would eat it. It was a a fun little game I grew up playing at every meal. But that was dad's love for me. I have great confidence in, in my father's love for me. I have never, ever doubted it for a moment. And yet, I know that his love, as great as it is, is conditional. I know that because the only reason actually that he loves me the way he does is because I am his son. I have lots of friends who I think are better human beings than I am, and my dad doesn't even remember their names. It's true. Were I an enemy or helpless or ungodly or a sinner against him, His love would not be the same. And this is the reality of the human experience of love in our lives. You and I have only experienced at its shining best conditional love. If we could even call it love. Remember, this is love. Not that we love, but that He loves. There is no variety or amount of human love that can teach us God's love. Human love is always based on worthiness and conditions. So Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says that God's love is so wide, high, deep and long that it surpasses knowledge. Of course it does. Then how then do we come to know God's love? How? That's Romans 5. And hope does not disappoint. Whoa. All I know is disappointment. Either experiencing it myself or causing it for somebody else. Because that's human love. And yet Romans 5, 5 dares to tell us that the hope we have in God's love does not disappoint. How? Why? Why? Because, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through human experience. No, it doesn't say that. Now you're on to my tricks. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through mom's love. Through wife's love. Through siblings. Through teachers and authority figures. Through pastors? Heavens, no. Through what? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Therefore, Apostle Paul continues on in Ephesians 3.19 to tell us that the love of God in Christ cannot be known, but it must be revealed to us. It's revelation that is to say, that God's love is so foreign to who we are and what we experience here on earth that it has to break into our world. It is not of our world. It is completely and totally alien to us. Different, other, that is the Bible's word for this, is what? Holy, set apart, distinct, like no or nothing other. God's love is holy love. And it can only be known through revelation. That is, the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, has to come into our dead hearts. Remember, we are dead in our trespasses, right? We are helpless. We are enemies. We are ungodly. We are sinners. The spirit of the living God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead has to come into our hearts and reveal this love of God in Christ Jesus to us. Unless there is as the old King James says, a quickening that is a raising of the dead. We cannot know the love of God. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter if you're part of the most educated city in the country, which is Seattle, in case you didn't know that. It doesn't matter how competent you are. It doesn't matter how you look, how you smell, what connections or friends you have, what kind of names you can drop, what your resume or CV looks like. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished or what you will. It doesn't matter what your actual or potential good is. We are all dead and unable, unable to comprehend the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, save for the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was earned by our good works. I'm terrible at reading scripture. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, given to us, given to us. How, when, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot know this love. The love of God in Christ Jesus is undeserved, unconditional, alien, and threatening to us. Now, we have an immune system, don't we? We have an immune system as individuals. We don't like foreign objects, foreign entities. We have an immune system as a community, as a culture. We like to stay just the way we are. We like our expectations to be met and exceeded. We want more of the same. But here is God's love, which is alien to us. And what should be our first response? Oh my gosh, this is so great. I've been waiting for this my whole life. Absolutely not. Our first reaction is hatred of God's love. We fight against it. Our immune system kicks in and says, I do not know what this is. This is foreign, this is unfamiliar, and I reject it. I was um, uh, a senior in college, and we were on our way to an intervarsity retreat up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And my car that I was assigned to was driven by a um, man that we will call Arnold. And um, I really didn't like him. He was uh, an international student. And uh, back at home, he had a chauffeur and a housekeeper and lived a good life. And uh, he was over here in Michigan. And just two days before the start of this road trip to the retreat center, he decided to buy a car. He bought a little Ford Escort. Do you remember those? He bought a little Ford Escort. And this was going to be the very first time he's ever driven On the highway, (laughs) I begged and I pleaded that I be the driver. To no avail, he sits in the driver's seat, and I'm sitting in uh, the shotgun seat, passenger seat, and I immediately make myself fall asleep because I am so nervous about this guy. And um, again, my spider instincts were correct, and uh, we got into a huge car accident. He um, didn't realize that highways had rumble strips on the side. And so he was looking in his rearview mirror, and the speed limit at that time uh, on I-75 in Michigan was 75. And so we were probably going, I I don't know, but probably I'm guessing around 85 was probably the flow of traffic. But he's looking in his rearview mirror, and his car slightly steers to the right side of the lane on the, other, on the wrong side of the white line, and the car begins to rumble. Now, good old Arnold has never heard this before in his life. He panics. He, he freaks out. And he overcorrects, which is what inexperienced drivers do. And he's never been on the highway, not realizing that even a little bit of oversteering at 85 miles an hour. So he overcorrects to his left, and we hit a car on our left side. And then he overcorrects, and we hit a car on our right side. And then he overcorrects, and we started flipping. And witnesses told us we flipped five times. We ended up in the middle ditch between the two highway directions, upside down, with all our windows blown out. And then, uh, moments later, uh, an EMT worker Looked upside down into our car, and he said, are you guys all right? And we're all hanging upside down in the car. And I said, yeah, I think we're all right. And he said, thank God. I thought I was going to bring home corpses today. Somebody upstairs must be looking out for you. Now, when you first hear that, you think, oh, wow, yeah, God loves us. That's great. But think for a second more about what that actually means. I realized, not at that moment, but after a few years of thinking about that comment and relating it to God's love, that that was a statement of indictment. It was not a compliment. What he was actually saying was, You idiots. (laughs) You should have died. You almost killed other people, not only yourselves. You should have died, but somebody was looking out for you, meaning you got lucky. You actually deserved death. But you did not die. That is, you experienced grace, something that was undeserved and unmerited. You were not worthy of your life being preserved. But you're alive. Thank God. Not thank Arnold. Not thank Peter. Thank God, because you guys had nothing to do with the preservation of your life. The way you were acting, you should have died. You deserved to die. That's just basic physics. But somebody was gracious with you. Grace, my friends, grace is not a compliment. Grace is an indictment against your whole nature. Grace is saying to each and every single person on this planet that's ever lived or ever will live, that you all deserve to die, and the only way you're going to preserve your life is by God's goodness, not your own, that left to your own devices, you will die, and you should die. That is what you have merited. That's the trajectory that you are on. That road you're on leads to death. Except by the grace of God, He lifted you out of this road and put you on another path. And that not of yourselves. Grace tells me that I am dumb, that I am stupid, that I don't know how to do good for myself or for other people. That my thoughts at best are perverted and fall short. That I don't know how to love other people. I don't know how to serve other people. That my motives have motives have motives. That I am complicated and damaged beyond beyond my ability to stay alive. And don't get near me either, because I will kill you just as well. Am I speaking harshly? This is what grace is shouting at us. That because I could not do it, God had to do it. That it is not by my works, but his finished work on the cross. We hate grace. It's threatening to us. It's an indictment against us. It's God's judgment over us. Jesus had to die in our place. Not just die because that's what good people do. He didn't just die for no reason. He died in our stead. He died instead of you. Instead of me. He had to die. It was necessary that the Christ suffer. He himself said this on the road to Emmaus. It was absolutely non-negotiable. It was his life for ours. The undeserved, unconditional, and alien love of God is threatening to us. Now... I love it. I love the idea of God's love. I just think it just, it just makes me feel so good. It gives me a freedom from having to bear the burden of being responsible for myself and others around me because I know I can't carry it. But when I think about it, I have arguments against grace. Don't you? If it is all God and not me, I think, huh, I can work with that. And I realize I can very easily take advantage of God's grace. And that's the great dilemma. Human nature and grace do not seem to work well together. Because I am clever, folks. I know how to beat the system. But the grace of God tells us that just when it seems unfair to God, that's grace's starting point with me. Grace, by definition, is unfair to God. If it was fair, it would be called grace. It'd be called justice. Grace, by definition, is a taking advantage of God. It is at God's cost. It's at His price. It is not fair. It is very unfair. Grace can't be taking, taken advantage of because God can't be manipulated. It's not like, oh, Peter, are you serious? You're going to pray for forgiveness again? But I just, I mean, it just really seems unfair. I mean, do you really think I should forgive you again? You promised you wouldn't do that anymore. It just, I just feel like I just keep having to give to you. And furthermore, I didn't know you were going to do that. Huh, I, just, I did not account for that. Wow, your sinfulness is really surprising, Peter. I thought you were better than that. I don't think God's ever had that thought. Now, I don't know. I don't think he's ever had that thought. And so I think, huh, that's really good. That's really interesting. What this means is that I can sin all I want. I can do whatever I want because I can't take advantage of God's grace. Now, when I think about that, that seems really dangerous to the Christian cause, doesn't it? I mean, if you and I, we can, if we really believe in, like, real grace, not just being gracious, not just as an adjective, does, does that work? How does the whole Christian faith thing perpetuate over the years? Why isn't it just sort of folded in on itself? It's like a kind of a black hole just collapsing. I imagine myself sort of just sinning and doing whatever I want to do, and then Christians around me just getting kind of uncomfortable going, hey, um, aren't you taking advantage of God's love there? Thinking, no, 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 you you don't understand grace. That's your problem. Do you know that it's undeserved and unconditional? Do you know that it's alien and it's threatening to us, and that's why you're afraid of it right now? No, but me, I understand that. I embrace the indictment. I know I'm a sinner, so I'm just going to act like it. And if I need forgiveness, if I need his help, watch this. Three more wishes. And then three more. There's no limit. Rub that lamp all you want. And you can wish for more wishes. It's all yours. It's just grace. Grace abounding. Now, how many of you have been? If, if there are Christians in this room, or even if you're not and you practice this, how many of you um, have? I'm going to ask you a question, and I have already spoken to the Lord about this. You will not lose your reward for publicly declaring this. How many of you have already have fasted before, ever in your life? Oh, wow! A good number of you, bunch of goody-two-shoes in here, <laughs> or desperate people. I don't know. Now, how many of you have fasted? For at least one whole 24 hour day. Okay, keep your hands up, okay? Don't put it back down. Now, how many of you have fasted for three days, three whole days? Keep your hands up. Seven whole days. Keep it up. Let me see him. It's okay, God's gonna multiply your reward. 14 days, 21 days. You you want to know what my record is? 30 days. Twice. I had to. I I was paid to do it. I'm a pastor. (laughs) Here's what I learned about fasting as I was fasting. The first day of fasting doesn't work. All I thought about is food at midnight. I had a headache. My breath stank, and I was sleepy all day. Waste of my time, I thought. When I fasted for a week, I began to taste of the power of fasting, that it was a discipline that not that I'm doing, but it was doing me. It was larger than me, and I had entered into it. And so I began to experience a kind of humility and a kind of sobriety that I had not experienced before. And I thought, wow, fasting is powerful. Now, at the end of that week, when I was meeting with folks for counseling, Guess what my advice was to every person who had a problem that I met with? (laughs) Here is me with a hammer. Guess what everything looked like? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I think that maybe if you fasted for seven days, parentheses, like me, you would solve all your problems. And then when I fasted for longer than seven days, the fasting itself began to break down my sense of control and self-importance and work. And I just felt nothing about fasting. I wasn't thinking about fasting anymore. I was just thinking about God. I wasn't thinking about the fact that I was thinking about God. Just God and His world. And I was beginning to see the world through His eyes and hear people's words through His ears and I began to be transformed in a way I did not expect. I think there's a similar dynamic with grace. That when you taste just a little bit of grace, your conclusion at the end of it is, doesn't work. My human nature is way more powerful than God's grace. I need to save myself. Now, if you taste. Just enough grace. Then you think, huh, this thing kind of works. I like it. Let me dispense it at will. Let me be master over it. Let me think thoughts like you shall not take advantage of it. But when you have too much grace in your life, then the grace itself begins to break you down. Break down the pride. And it begins to save you. And it's all you have. And this is what the Apostle Paul says later on after the passage that Chris read for us. He says, should we abound, that grace may abound all the more? He's asking this question. And the answer is, may it never be. And we think, we read that in the English, and we think it says, don't you dare I kind of imagine a finger wagging. Don't you dare. Don't you dare take advantage of God's grace. Don't you dare sin more that grace may abound all the more. But that's not what it says in the Greek, actually. I hate saying the word Greek. Sorry, that's not what it says in the original language. You know what it says? It says, if you translate it literally, it says, it cannot be. That it cannot come to pass. Meaning that's not the way grace works. Should we sin more that grace may abound all the more? And Apostle Paul is saying, when you find yourself asking that question, that is not the fruit of grace in your life. That is your sinful nature speaking. See, sin begets sin. Sin wants to sin more. But grace, grace leads to what? Repentance. Grace leads to transformation. Acceptance is the door through which we experience change. You and I, we're human. We, in our limited understanding of love, we fear accepting, totally accepting somebody. Because if we do, they're going to stay there. And we can't have that. But God says, no, boldly approach the throne of grace, and there you will find grace and mercy to help you in time of trouble. Don't dust yourself off first. Don't change first. Come just as you are. Be fully embraced and accepted. Live in grace. Have too much grace, and that grace itself will be the very help that you need to get you to stop thinking that grace is harmful to a certain extent. Grace is not just a nice, warm, fuzzy hug to help you feel better. It is the power of God. It is the hope and the power of the gospel. Grace is the word that describes Jesus Christ's power at work in our lives. Grace is strong, it is not weak. Grace is larger than you. You cannot take advantage of it. It is not vulnerable to manipulation. You are not smarter than grace. And if you find yourself feeling like you're taking advantage of God's grace or that you don't deserve it this time, well, you never did. In other words, grace is not only an indictment, Grace is sufficient. It is not anger, discipline, fear, guilt, shame, pressure, or good deeds, but the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. And it is those who are forgiven much who love much. And lastly, the undeserved, unconditional, and alien, and threatening love of God is foundational. Obedience and our love are important. But they come as a response to God's love for us. And this order can never, ever be reversed. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love. Why? How? We love because He first loved us. Without first love, there is no love. Without first love, there is no love. We love, we only love because He first loved us. He is love. Without Him, how can we love when His love is alien to us? Grace is foundational. It precedes obedience. And when the Bible talks about obedience, it assumes grace. But you and I, we assume grace prematurely. I want to invite you to uh, application point for the next 30 days. In 30 days, we are going to have our first Sunday in Advent, which means coming. And that's when we begin to recognize that God sent his son to us on mission to die for us, to die instead of us. He died so that you and I might live. And we want to begin to celebrate that coming. And that's what we call Advent. But until we get to Advent, we have about 30 days starting today. We have been doing 30 days of listening. It's been 30 days since I first invited you all to 30 days of listening. I don't want us to stop. I want to invite you into 30 more days of listening, but deeper listening. And here's what I want to suggest and I'm going to be doing this with you. In fact, I have already been doing it for two weeks. I want to invite you to 30 days of fasting so that you can all stand at the pulpit and show off like I did. No, it's not going to be necessarily for food. I imagine most of us don't have the luxury to, to have no sugar in our blood. So um, I want to invite you to pick something that is going to deprive you of something that you are dependent on. And I want you to intentionally create a vacuum in your life. And this need that remains unmet for 30 days will continue perpetually remind you that you are a creature of needs and that we are filled with illegitimate ways of meeting these very legitimate needs. But by choosing to not meet one of these needs, we're going to use that reminder as a way to be reminded that God alone can come and fill that place, fill that space, meet that need. So I want to tell you what I'm doing. Uh, Susie and I are doing this together. We have for the last two weeks, and you have to understand, I rather fast from food than from what I'm about to share with you. I am stopping my screen time at 9.30 p.m. Like, no screens, no phone, no iPad, no computer, no TV. That's really hard for me. And I've been doing it for two weeks now, and uh, I would like to try to do it for 30 more days. So no screen time after 9.30. And what do I do from 9.30 on? Well, there's life beyond the screen, I haven't come to realize. And I don't like it as much, but, <laughs> but it, it has been really good for me. So I want to invite you to pick something. It can be a habit. It can be a food item that you enjoy. For some of you, it can be coffee. Wait, no, don't do coffee. Nobody will like you then. Maybe uh, maybe Diet Coke or something. Maybe soda. Maybe desserts. A, li- <laughs> a, li- a little taste of uh, Lenten season uh, to come. But pick something, and I want to ask you to join me in creating an intentional vacuum, an unmanned need that serves to perpetually remind us that God alone can fill our needs. Okay? So that's your assignment, and that's the application point. And my prayer has been that as we experience this fast together as a church, we will come to see that it is not by might nor power but by His Spirit that we live and move and have our being, that we have things like nourishment and wisdom and friendship and support and jobs and love and life in our life. That it really is by God's grace. And I want to tweak it a little bit. I want to suggest that you break this fast every Sunday. So I don't want you to do it beyond your faith and think, oh, I'm going to do it 30 straight days. I think you're going to be miserable. So just do it for six days. Pick something. Start tomorrow. Pick something. Go until Saturday and then break it on Sunday uh, and then start again on Monday and do that until the first Sunday in Advent. And I am confident that will help us all to listen better and deeper. Now, as we enter into the communion time, um, I want to give you some options for us. I want to give you some options. There are four options I want you to think about that are on the board here. Okay? And I, 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 I want to invite you to self-select yourself into one of these four groups. The first group is you are not a Christian. You're not, you have never committed your life to Christ. Or you did, but you really have not had anything real to call a relationship with Jesus. And you want to do that for the first time. Uh, If that's you, that's seize the moment. Yes, right now, Jesus, I accept your grace, your love. I've heard truth today, and the Spirit has been speaking, and I invite you to come into my life. That's seize the moment. Okay? There's another group. You're still an unbeliever, but you're just not ready to seize the moment today. But you want to engage in the fast and you want some time to think about Jesus and his love for you. And that's you. You're the fast and think group and you will make a decision later. And if you fit into either of those first two groups, please come immediately after the service to me so I can know who you are. Now, the rest of you, there's two groups. Third. More and new again. If you are sitting here going, I have been a Christian, but I do not know, I have not known God's love the way it was described today. And I want to invite God to do a fresh new work of God, of grace in my mind and in my life, in my relationships, in my workplace. If that's you, I want you to put yourself in the more and new again group. And lastly, some of you are saying, I have believed and trusted in this grace. And I want to thank God for it. I'm grateful for the reminder today. And if that's you, you're in the thank you box. Okay? So I want to invite the ushers and the praise team to come forward. Um, We're going to have six stations spread out across the room. Two up front, two in each corner here. There's also going to be a floater if you feel more comfortable Receiving communion at, at your seats. Lift up your hand until you make eye contact with a floater, and they will be happy to bring the elements to you. In our church, we practice an old 5th century method called intinction. It's one of the earliest methods of communion that we know of. What we would like you to do is take the bread and dip it into the juice Hold up the elements, return to your seats or go off to a corner. Have the moment you need to have and take it when you feel you are ready to receive the elements into your body. And as you do, our request is that you remember Jesus. Okay, so let me speak the words of institution. On the night in which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. Take and drink and as you do, remember me. Put yourself in one of these groups and please come forward and receive the elements as you are ready.